Wealth can be measured in many ways. As it grows, life can quickly become complex, creating the need for more focused planning. Welcome to We're Talking Money with OmniStar Financial Group. OmniStar has been helping clients achieve financial success for more than 20 years in a client-centric and stress-free environment. With a reputation built on a long track record of working with people who want to grow and protect their assets, OmniStar illuminates the blind spots and provides actionable strategies to help you achieve what's most important. This is where you can count on straightforward and unbiased advice from a team of professionals that are passionate about your success. Thanks for joining us for another week of We're Talking Money Live. Just kidding. Hey, it could be live. We're not we're not live, but thanks for joining us for another week of We're Talking Money expert series. We're going to dive back into investments this week. And last week where we left off, we had talked about different types of investment accounts. We had talked about why you might save in a 401k or a Roth IRA, an individual account. And we really dove into those different structures, what it means to how you can pull your money out, how long you have to leave it in there and tax implications. This week, we're going to talk about the fun stuff that goes into the account. So we're going to dive into ETFs, mutual funds, UITs, individual stock portfolios, robo advisors, and just some, you know, some other concepts in that realm. Hopefully this will answer some questions people may have when, you know, maybe you're pitched an investment and you don't know what it is first step, probably go Google it, you know, look it up, do some research on your own. Before you make any decision like that, you always want to really know what you're talking about. But this should give you a good idea if you've been wondering, uh, you know, about what the latest, greatest investment is or what you're about to get into. Hopefully we can clear up some of those blind spots, make things a little clearer for you and guide you on the path forward. So without any more intro, we will dive right into what some of those different investments are, you know, right out the gate before we talk about which ones we want to pick, what we want to look into, we always have to preface it by saying, what are your goals? Because if you don't know what your goal is, you're going to have a hard time picking what to put your funds into or investing into, because if you need money in three years from now, you probably don't want to invest in a product that has a 10 year lockup on it or a type of fund where you're not expected to get any gains for the first five years. These are important things to be aware of because why would you do something that just does not fit your objectives? That being said, most investments have a role. They have a reason. There's a reason why they exist. Somebody created them to do something. And so once you know what you're trying to do, it makes it a lot easier to choose what type of investment you you, you want to get. Yeah, really, which one is going to most benefit that investor, right, Alex? 100%. I mean, at the end of the day, it's what what do I want my money to do and what's the most efficient way and the quickest way I can get it there? Nobody wants to get rich slow. Sometimes that's the smarter way to get rich, but if we educate ourselves on the front end, then we can trip over a lot less potholes on the way. Yeah, and I think I think a point to add to that, Alex, is 30 years ago when I got started in this industry, you didn't have nearly as many investment choices, and 50 years ago, fewer still. Today, there's all of these that you named at the beginning of the show, but I remember a day when there was mutual funds and there were stocks and bonds, and that was pretty much it, and today there are more flavors in the investment world than one person can keep up with, particularly a lay person. So it's enough for us to keep up with it, as you know, and then to expect someone to make a good decision on that. Yes, they can Google it, but even then 
you end up with a lot of confusion potentially, and oftentimes they still pick the wrong thing or they get into the wrong chassis. So working with a firm, whether it's ours or working with someone who has knowledge to help you navigate all of that, there's probably no better advice than just that, having someone that you know, like, and trust that you can ask questions and and really help you make a better decision. It's complicated. Completely. And, you know, as we're diving into this, we'll, we'll talk about this right out the gate is that the underlying investments haven't changed a whole lot in the last 50 or 100 years. We still have to invest in a business or invest in an entity that produces money, something that can generate a return. That's what an investment is. But the packaging and the bundling of that investment you know, the options have really multiplied. So as we start to dive in, one of the things we want to touch on briefly is active versus passive investing. And we'll talk much deeper on this in a following podcast. But when you comes when it comes down to active versus passive, the active investor is going to be paying attention to the stock market. They're not, they're not going to likely be day trading the stock market, but they're going to be looking at either technical parameters or they're going to be looking at other tracking points within the market that, you know, they have built their portfolio process around so that they know when to trade their account. You know, maybe when a stock passes a certain PE level or they see a large sell-off, they're going to have different markers that tell them to trade that account. Passive says, we're going to sit back and we're going to buy the market. We're going to trust that the economy is trying to grow and we're going to let the economy essentially carry our return going forward. So we're trying to capture that market at the lowest possible cost and grow. Where Active says, we understand that there is, there's gain to be had by being prudent in the market and paying attention to different factors. And so we're going we're gonna to track those factors. So, and, it, and it really comes down to having more of a rules-based strategy when correct. you're active. So you've got fundamentals, technicals, as you said. Passive, on the other hand, is literally set it and forget it the indexes are rarely changed more than once a year. And even then, it's not an overhaul. You might have one stock that's removed from an index or a few and a couple are added in their place. And so passive, much different than active. Can it get you where you're trying to go? Of course. But the argument here is which one makes the most sense for that investor. So it's not so much which one is better or worse, it's what is going to make the most sense for your philosophy and your goals. Correct. And, you know, as we dive in, the first thing we're going to talk about here are stock. And when you think about stock, they can't really be a set it and forget it. The reason why they can't be a passive investment is because you're purchasing one specific company. You might think back to, you know, General Electric is a great example of a company that's been around for quite a while, very powerful company. But if you look at what's happened to them over the last few years, they, they've had quite a number of troubles. The values dropped drastically. And while they may have been 20, 30 years ago, a strong contender for a large, powerful company that you'd want in a good, healthy portfolio, you can ask many portfolio managers now, and they're probably steering clear of it because because their future's uncertain. If has you're been, has been for a long time, you know? Correct. Uh, you can go back 50, 60, 70 years and see where GE was, and they were really a staple. Mm-hmm. Any good investment manager held GE stock. Today, that stock has been pummeled time and time again. Their fundamentals, you know, they get a little better, then they get soft again, and they get a little better. And I think you're right. It's hard to allow something like that to be passive because 
you have to know that if fundamentals are no longer working, why would you hold it? Because chances are that stock's not going to perform. Correct. And, and, you know, that's not to say that they may not recover at some point. They've had their ups and downs, as most companies have ups and downs. But the point of it is, is that you need to have some active operation in a stock portfolio because when the technicals and when the fundamentals start pointing towards a downturn and you can see the downturn and we're not trying to time it here, but things look bleak and they don't look like they're coming back anytime soon. We want to be able to take an educated exit from that stock position and reposition the portfolio somewhere else. Well, look, I mean, it's pretty simple, Alex. If you've got a stock that has earnings per share of, say, a dollar, but the stock is trading at 50 or 60 times earnings, does it really make sense to pay that much for a dollar of earnings? You know, what whatever that delta is, does that really make sense? Eventually, if a stock's fundamentals don't support its price, price is coming down, period. And so I think your point is, why would you hold that? Why would you not rotate out of that stock and find something that has fundamentals that actually suggest it is a good holding and something that's going to improve your portfolio or your performance versus hanging on to something where you can see right before your eyes that the fundamentals are broken. Correct. And so, you know, as we talk about this, you might be thinking to yourself, that all sounds a little bit confusing. And so that gets to kind of the point of investing in stock. You probably want to have a manager unless you're retired and that's all you want to do all day is track your portfolio and I'd you rather, actually want I'd to rather, learn. I'd rather go back to work. I, I probably would too. I mean, I'm, I'm still at work, so I guess it doesn't count for me, but I, I don't want to retire and then have to no. work all the time managing my stocks, man. What a, what a terrible way to live retirement. I mean, there, there are people called analysts that do this for a living. And so the, the perk of a stock portfolio is that you have a number of positions and, and truly you want to have between 30 and 40 positions to have a diversified portfolio, but you would have a professional trading your 30 to 40 positions. You can always have more, but we know that that's the figure where you start to have a pretty good exposure to the market so that they can balance everything and they move in and out of stocks that no longer you know, meet your goals. That being said, there is no cost to holding a stock. And so that's one of the advantages of having a portfolio of individual stock as opposed to some of the other things we mentioned at the start of the show is that they don't have a they don't have a fee attached to them. So the only fee you're going to pay is potentially trading costs, even though most firms have removed trading costs or in management fees. So all in, they can be a very effective way if you have enough money to properly purchase 30 to 40 different companies and diversify into a portfolio. So that the downside of investing in stock is you're probably going to need at least a six-figure account, if not mid to higher six-figure account, just to be able to properly diversify yourself into just stock. So, so, so sort of the message here is if you have enough, if your portfolio is large enough, you can graduate into individual positions where you can start to see some efficiency, some cost savings, because you don't have these expense ratios and commissions and all of the things that might be associated with some of the other instruments that we talked about. Correct. And you also get to take advantage of active investing, which, you know, based off of what we know about the markets, traditionally active investments tend to perform better in downward markets because you can take a little bit more research into it really and be able to act on companies that technicals aren't showing where they should be. On the other side, they tend to perform not quite as well in uptrending markets just because they tend to have a little bit more fees attached to them. That, that 
is kind of a back and forth battle because a lot of the products have fees. So if your investment fees for managing your stock portfolio are less than what a mutual fund would cost or another bundled investment, it's kind of a wash. So that that's really, you know, picking, picking a, a fight that's not worth picking there. But at the end of the day, great option if you have the funds to justify it. The next thing we're going to talk about are mutual funds. They're kind of the original bundled investment, if you will. It's the most common investment you'll hear people talk about, even though ETFs are on the rise. But a mutual fund is an open-ended, professionally managed selection of securities. Basically, what that means is a professional advisor is purchasing a group of securities like you potentially could do if you had the funds to do it yourself. And they are properly diversifying it based off of an investment objective. And they are going to manage that portfolio for you. You pay a mutual fund advisory fee. There's a fee attached to that fund. And that fee is what you're paying that advisor to do their professional due diligence on the stocks and bonds inside that portfolio and make sure everything's performing per their investment policy. Phil, do you want to dive into really where a mutual fund might shine for an investor who who might be a great candidate for electing a mutual fund? Well, I think first mutual funds are something that should be familiar to everybody, which you mentioned. And one of the most common places that we see them is inside a 401k plan. So not unusual or unheard of to see individual stocks in a 401k, but generally a mutual fund is what you'll find. Mutual funds are great for beginning investors. They're great for smaller account sizes, but they can also be good for larger account sizes. Some people just don't want to deal with anything else. They want more of a set it and forget it, let a manager handle it. And this is essentially a way of doing what you just described with individual stocks. But if they don't have an investment advisor that they want to work with, they could they can go to the market and buy their own mutual funds. Or if they work with an advisor, again, smaller accounts, mutual funds could be a great tool. Get you diversified and it doesn't really matter what amount of money you have. So because they're open-ended, they have what's called a net asset value that's generated daily, really throughout the day, you can see that net asset value. And so you know exactly what you're buying. Shares are constantly being issued, hence the term open-ended. So that's a great way to get involved in investing. If you if you only have $1,000, that's a great place to to get started. And you know that you're properly diversified. The negative with a mutual fund, in my opinion, is that for larger assets, you don't need to pay the expense ratios associated with the mutual fund. The second disadvantage is you don't have any control over the mutual fund manager when they choose to take gains off of that portfolio. And so you might be in that mutual fund for a very short period, but all of a sudden you get some capital gain distributions and you've got to pay tax on that. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I just bought this thing within the year and now I'm I'm paying tax on something. And Alex, that can happen even though the fund's value is going down. So your account value could be going down and you're paying tax and you're thinking, wait a minute, what the heck? So that's a level of control that you can have with individual stocks, but you lose that control with the mutual fund. The manager is going to make those distributions generally in November, and you have no control over that. The third disadvantage is you really have zero flexibility in what you own. So for example, if you think there are certain stocks that are socially irresponsible, you can't call the mutual fund manager and say, I don't really want to own that. 
Are you saying I can't have tobacco in my mutual fund? Hey, exactly. The manager is going to say to you, we're going to have what we want to have in that mutual fund. And if if you don't like it, Mr. Investor, then you need to find a different fund. Yeah, because they're chasing return, right? That's right. That's right. They're chasing return. Their bonuses are built around performance. And so those guys want to make return, those gals in there, they're trying to build performance. They're not worried about what they hold. Now, there is socially responsible mutual funds. So if you really wanted that, you'd have to go in that direction. But you don't have nearly the flexibility that you do with individual stocks. For example, as you know, Alex, in our institutional strategy holds 40 stocks. But a client can say to us, I want a restriction on certain types of stocks. I don't want to hold this or I don't want to hold alcohol stocks or tobacco stocks or whatever. And we can accommodate that. And, and so that's a nice way for a client to build a strategy and be considerate of their social beliefs or their social goals. doesn't mean that we agree with it every time, but it's available and you don't have that in a mutual fund. And then lastly, you've already mentioned cost. Mutual funds come with extra fees. There's no reason to pay it if you don't have to. But if you don't have enough money to or enough of an investment account to to get into individual equities, mutual funds are still a pretty darn good way to go. There's some good companies out there, some that have been around for you know well over 100 years, and they do a good job. There's nothing wrong with them. I think they have a place. Completely agree with that. And I will mention this on the fee thing, just so people can be aware about it. If you look at that mutual funds fee, just remember that you can have that with an advisor and your advisor may potentially be charging you a fee on top of the mutual fund fees that are internal. They're probably not letting you know that. Most advisors don't want to brag about how much money they're charging you, but it's very common that if your portfolio is built out of mutual funds, that there is a fee on top of that. And here, you know, here we do that, but we do it with ETFs. And so one thing we might recommend is that pay attention to your funds. We're going to talk about ETFs in a minute. They're a much more cost-effective way to get diversification, usually have fees that are a tenth or less of what you know comparable mutual funds may be, and they're a really efficient way to get a diverse position in a portfolio without throwing fees through the roof if there's already going to be an advisor fee. So just something to be aware of as you look into your portfolio after listening to this. Next topic we're going to talk about are UITs, which are unit investment trusts. They are Something that's used to be a little bit more popular than they are now. They're not quite as common. People are starting to value flexibility a lot more than I think they used to. And bond funds aren't quite as popular, I think, as they used to either. And that's kind of where UITs were shining. But a unit investment trust is a closed-end fund. And what basically happens is a fund manager, like a mutual fund manager, goes to market and they build a portfolio. And let's say it's $250 million. And they purchase all these shares of different companies or different bonds. They bundle it up into a little product and they chop it up. That product might have, let's call it 10 million shares. So there are now 10 million shares of a UIT on market. Now those shares are never increased or decreased, but you can trade them. There's usually fees involved by canceling them early. But as an individual investor, you can purchase shares of that UIT. And then there's usually a maturity date. So you're going to hold it to maturity. At maturity, you get 
your money back, and they're known for you know spitting off dividends, and then you get a return at the end. So the concern with UITs typically is that if you're not holding them through to their maturity date, and you know usually it's not long term. A lot of the times it's two, three, four years. They're usually shorter term maturities. There can be fairly high fees to close those fund shares out early. Like I said, they're not extremely common. They used to be fairly popular, but can be a good investment similar to a mutual fund in it's a bundle of securities. Fees can be a little bit higher, but there can be advantages usually for potentially more astute investors who are trying to get a specific need. But if this is your first time to investing, we'd, we'd probably recommend you steer clear of them and stick with the mutual funds or the ETFs. So with that being said, I think we'll transition over to ETFs because these are kind of the new kid on the block that I think is really shaking up the investment world. They've been around for a long time, but man, are they really gaining traction oh, yeah. now. And hundreds of billions of dollars have been thrown towards these ETFs because of their efficiency. And, you know, they are so inexpensive. We have a suite of portfolios that we use for clients who are not quite at that level where they can get into the individual equities. And our ETF strategies perform very well. And gosh, at a much, much lower price than a similar strategy using mutual funds. And certainly, completely, you know, UITs, boy, they can be really expensive. And, you know, one other thing about a UIT that I, I think you started to touch on is they're not always the most liquid investment, depending on which UIT you're using or its size. You can get stuck in one of those in a closed-in environment. You don't always have a liquid product like you do with, say, a mutual fund that's always NAV or, or an open-ended fund, you could find yourself in a position where you thought you could redeem and, and then you're being told, hey, you got to wait a few more days or just not enough liquidity, or maybe we can redeem some of it, but not all of it. So definitely yeah. buyer beware in a lot of ways. ETFs, on the other hand, there's a market being made throughout the day. And one thing that you didn't mention, Alex, on mutual funds, you can only trade a mutual fund at four o'clock every day. Yep. They you sell know? at NAV. So you've got to wait right. till the end of the day. Once that's been calculated, you can dispose of your shares, but no interday trading. That's right. So you can buy them at nine o'clock in the morning. But what you're really doing is putting in your order at nine o'clock in the morning. Your order is not filled whether you're buying or selling until four o'clock. So definitely a disadvantage in some ways where the ETFs, I know we'll talk about this, but the ETF, it trades just like a stock throughout the day and intraday trading is not a problem. Correct. And that's what makes ETFs kind of the cool new investment you can get your hands on because realistically, there's a suite and quite a few companies have suites of ETFs all across different investment targets and different, you know, investor profiles that they're trying to target too that have costs as low as three basis points, two basis points, five basis points. And you can find mutual funds at the 20 to 30 basis point range, but most of the higher end investment managers are going to be charging around, you know, 60 basis points, 70 basis points up to, you know, 100, 150 basis points. So, and depending, I mean, know. some international, some emerging market funds, I'll see them as high as 175, yep. you know, 200 basis points. They get pretty expensive and maybe in some ways they're worth it. If they're truly delivering alpha, then it could make some sense. But, you know, with the ETFs, sort of that hybrid between a stock and a mutual fund, I just think they're very efficient. And for an investor who likes passive, mm -hmm. wants low cost, wants to work with an advisor, 
maybe want some active built into that. Maybe they want all active. All of those things can be accomplished with ETFs. And there's no shortage of them and certainly no shortage of style within the ETF. So you can literally find any part of the market or any industry and you can go around the globe. You can be exposed anywhere you want to be exposed, whether it's international, domestic, whatever the case, any sector, you name it, you can find it in an ETF. So right now, a wonderful tool and uh, certainly one that should be you should be educated on these because they are definitely a great way to invest and, in our opinion, probably give you some greater benefits that, that are not found in the mutual fund. Yeah, and I'm, you've done a pretty good job of covering ETFs, but really the, the key highlights, is, like you said, it's you get the diversification of a mutual fund in one purchase, but you get the flexibility and tradability of a stock where you can trade them interday or intraday. And, you know, you have a really low cost. The cost is even lower than the mutual fund, even though you have more flexibility than the mutual fund. So it's really hard to not justify them. The main thing here is that, you know, they are for a passive investor. They're still a bundle. You can't be extremely nimble because when you sell one, you're selling a bundle of securities. You can't make a selection of just one security you want to get rid of or one security you want to buy. But that being said, if you're trying to track a market or a major index or trying to round out a portfolio, it's really hard to beat an ETF. Yeah, I think um, I think where we use them a lot, it's one, it's fortifying a portfolio or rounding, as you said, you know, we might want to expose ourselves a little more in a certain sector or a certain industry and we can do that mm-hmm. or maybe maybe we want to be passive but we want to use it as more of a tactical strategy and so while you can't sell out of a stock you're selling as you said a bundle you can certainly be tactical from a from, from the standpoint of sectors and so as you rotate sectors maybe you up your exposure in technology and lower your exposure in healthcare. All of that can be done within the allocation of ETFs or, you know, a combination of ETFs and mutual funds or stocks with some fortification from ETFs if you wanted to say overweight in something. So, so many ways you can use ETFs, very effective, very low cost. I like them. I think our firm supports them very, very much. And we don't have a problem recommending them to any of our clients and particularly those who are who have smaller investment accounts ETFs are a great way to get diversified and that's about where I was going to go to wrap it up on ETFs is that if you are a younger investor or someone that has a smaller account you want to still be able to diversify maybe you still want to pick a few different investments instead of just buying one fund. You can go into the ETF market, do some research, buy from a major, major supplier, you know, that some of the top companies in ETFs, it, it's not hard to find them. Google it, they'll they'll show up. And you can get three or four different ETFs and you're on your way and it's low cost. The shares are usually very low priced. So even with a few hundred dollars, you can get started, you know, purchasing ETFs. And it's a great way to get your feet wet and to diversified investing. The last thing we want to talk about before we wrap up is robo-advisors. And so the way a robo-advisor works is it essentially helps you allocate your portfolio. I want to preface this by saying that the sweet spot for a robo-advisor is somebody that needs investment advice who probably does not have a lot of assets, or if they do have a lot of assets, 
Their life is very simple. Uh, RoboAdvisor is a low-cost way to get portfolio diversification and get basically boilerplate financial advice at a low cost. And ultimately, if someone has a very large portfolio, it can honestly be cheaper to get personalized advice more than a robo-advisor does. But usually what they will do is they will run a portfolio of mutual funds or ETFs, like we were talking about, that you can invest in. And when you sign up with a robo-advisor, you're going to go through a risk tolerance questionnaire and they're going to ask the different your tolerance for the volatility in the market, how much of a downturn you can stomach. If you lost 30% in your portfolio tomorrow, would you you know, go screaming and cash everything out? Or would you just be sitting back knowing that you don't need the money for another 15 or 20 years or you know, whatever your situation may be? Robo-advisors are going to ask you some of those questions. They're not going to ask you a lot of the in-depth personal questions. They're not going to ask you about what, you, you know, do you want to leave assets for your family? Do you, you know, have you talked about estate planning? Have you talked about your tax environment? Have you recently contacted your insurance professional? Whatever it may be, they're not going that in-depth, but they are going to ask you some good questions for someone who may just be starting out and has never really thought about investing before. That being said, for most people who have a fairly sizable account or have anything complex, if you own a business, you know, is there's some financial intricacy to your life, usually not a great spot to get all of your advice because it's truly just focused on the investments portion of your financial picture. Well, and the other thing, Alex, that I like to remind our clients and any anyone for that matter, it's hard to have a relationship with a robo-advisor. And to me, relationships are so important. We're talking about your finances here. This is not, it shouldn't be viewed as boilerplate. Everyone has a financial footprint that is different. And because of that, we just don't believe that boilerplate or one size fits all is appropriate. You know, maybe it is when it comes to buying pots and pans, but when it comes to your finances, man, you need something that's designed for you. Completely. Uh, And you don't get that with a robo style advisor. So yeah, great points that you made there. And I think robos have a place. They're okay for some people and certainly those who want to be do-it-yourselfers or that, as you said, don't have complexity with their financial arrangements. But if you want someone that is going to be there for you, that's unbiased, that's going to work with you, help you make good decisions, that's the personal relationship of a professional that is part of your team. That's not something that you want to leave to chance. And certainly you don't want to leave it to someone that you probably never meet. And likely everything you do is built or is done through the computer. So yeah, I mean, as we're we're leaving this topic, I'll just put it out there because we will have a another podcast on financial planning down the road here. But one big thing too, is if you want to do ETF investing, or you just want to use a robo advisor, or you want to do something simple on your own, just remember, you can always reach out to us or your financial planner. Most planners will do planning for you for a one-time fee. You don't necessarily have to change your entire life, move all your money, reevaluate everything, reposition, remove, re-everything, whatever you might be fearful of to get a financial plan. And at the end of the day, it might be prudent to reallocate your assets, review your insurance, redo your estate planning, all the other re-words. But at least you'll know and you don't have to dive into you know a crazy relationship to do that. 
A lot well, of financial planners will offer that service to you, and it, it can be very worthwhile to look into financial planning. Well, we, we offer a second opinion service, our SOS program, and, and it's yep. perfect for people who may not necessarily want to move all their investments, but they want either a second opinion or they want someone to build a plan specific to their set of circumstances. And worst case is they're going to figure out that what they were doing was right. They get confirmation of that. Or they're going to figure out what they're doing can be improved. And when you're talking about the rest of your life money, trying to build your wealth and grow your wealth and preserve it, you deserve to know that as early as possible. So you don't have to hire us to manage the money to get a developed plan specific to you. Uh, You can go at it that route, or you can simply get a second opinion. Either way, there's a great opportunity to improve whether it's the second opinion, whether it's planning only, or whether it's a full-blown holistic relationship where we're doing everything with you, helping you achieve goals and objectives. So great points there, Alex. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, just wanted to make sure everyone knows that because I feel like everyone's always worried about what's the fee. And at the end of the day, I think the planning is much more important. But we'll talk about that in another episode. I don't want to get off too far off track. So wrapping up on the last point we have for today is just what should you be doing? And it's almost impossible. It's impossible, right? (laughs) It's an impossible question. Yeah. Trust me, the robo advisor can't answer it either. So if you're thinking about going there, bad bad start. (laughs) It's it's really hard to put a finger on it. But what we can say is that the clearest way to get an idea is to really identify to yourself what are your objectives and what are your goals. I mean, these are the questions that we ask first thing out the gate. First thing we ask is what's top of mind and what's the thorn in your side. But after that, it's what are your goals and what are your objectives? Because if you don't have goals and objectives, which most people do have, but if you don't, why are you saving the money? Why are you trying to plan for a retirement? You know, and, and the goal might just be, I want to be able to stop working at 65, or I want to have the flexibility to be able to walk away at 60. But whatever the goal is, whether it's that, or you want to get a cabin in Aspen, whatever it may be, there's planning that goes into place. And once you've identified where you're trying to be, then you can take a step back and say, you know what, I can go low cost with ETFs and be able to afford my retirement. Or you know what, maybe I need to get some comprehensive planning done and build a a strong individual stock portfolio based off where my assets are at. That's going to be the most efficient way to get me to my goal. Well, well said. One of the simplest ways to think about it is what is it that you're trying to do? When do you need to achieve your goal? What is that going to take to get you there? If you can't answer those questions, I mean, man, it's vague to say, well, I think I want to retire at 60 or I want the option. That's so vague. Well, what will it take to do that? And so what must change for you to get there? I think financial planning. Yeah, it has to happen. And if you take that one step further, you need someone at the helm with you that helps you avoid wrong turns. And that's the problem when you go it alone. Some people are astute enough. They can do these things. They have the wherewithal to do it, and they think the right way, and they they can actually build all this stuff on their own. But that's rare. If it wasn't rare, we wouldn't have a job. And it is so rare, most people get paralysis by analysis because it's so complicated. So, you know, in my opinion, it's not just the investment piece. It's making sure all of the other things are covered properly so that you get where you want to go 
successfully and you get there when you want to get there. So yeah, hard to tell anyone what you should be doing until you do some thorough investigation of what they're trying to accomplish. Then you begin to build a flexible plan around that. Yep. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Appreciate everyone joining us today, listening in. Kind of just a cover of the topics of investments that are most common. Some of the subjects that people are going to stumble across. Um, the next one we are going to be talking about will be some of the myths around investing. We're going to go into, you know, talking about compounding interest, benefits of dollar cost averaging, you know, some of the common slogans you'll hear about how you're supposed to invest, why you need to do one thing or another. And then I'm going to talk about a couple of things that us people in the industry know about, but a lot of people don't know out on the street. And one of those is just the average versus actual return and uh, mutual fund marketing. But until next time, that's it. Sounds great, Alex. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. Great time. Thanks for joining us on We're Talking Money. Be sure to visit our website, www.omnistarfinancial.com, where you can learn more about how we provide value to our clients. Subscribe to the show and our newsletters, and drop us a line with suggestions for upcoming shows. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. This podcast is a publication of Omnistar Financial Group. Any information provided has been prepared from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed, does not represent all available data necessary for making business or investment decisions, and is for informational purposes only and does not represent or constitute any recommendations. All expressions of opinion reflect that of the authors and are subject to change. If this podcast contains any projections, forecasts, guarantees, and or predictions of any kind, you're required to ignore the same. Omnistar is not engaged in the practice of law or accounting, and any information in this podcast should not be construed legal or tax advice. Any distributions, use, or copying of this podcast, other than the intended recipients, is unauthorized.